They buried me in the water and I came out new. Ha <laughs> ha. Now I'm baptized in blood. What's up, Sheepdog? Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast. That was my boy at One Time Music. Go look him up on all the socials, Instagram. You can go find all of his music. That song is called Baptized in Blue. You're going to be able to listen to that at the end of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy One Time's music. He's a fellow police officer. He's the man. I love this guy. Go listen to his shit really excited to introduce you to today's episode guest. Um, her name is Karen. She is one of the founders of Blue Help. And if you uh, do not know what Blue Help is, it's a nonprofit organization um, who help by honoring the service of law enforcement officers who died by suicide. They do a lot of research. They do training. Um, they support them. You're going to hear all about it. It's a uh, the organization who I use to keep up with my accurate statistics on um, suicide. You can find them on Instagram at bluehelple. I'm really excited for this interview and I hope you enjoy. Karen, I'm so excited to have you here. Can you please uh, introduce yourself to Sheepdog Nation? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Karen Solomon. I am the founder, co-founder, and president of Blue Help. Um, Help is an acronym for Honor, Educate, Lead, and Prevent. We focus on law enforcement, suicide prevention, education, awareness, family support. And I've also written two books about law enforcement, one called Hearts Beneath Badge and the other one called The Price They Pay. Amazing. How did you get, on, how'd you get into this? So it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of things started with Ferguson, right? So after the episode in Ferguson, um, I, I had a lot of friends. I had joined an online police wives group and, and everybody was really taking a beating and I, I got really frustrated. So I just wanted to do something for them to say thank you to them and their husbands. And I wrote um, Hearts Beneath the Badge. It was just, you know, good stories about officers who do good things. And then as a result of that, the price they pay was written as a res just like to explain the trauma and the toll it takes on police officers. It was real stories of officers with cumulative stress, mm. um, officers being shot point blank in the chest, things like that, uh, to show that this, th they really do pay a serious price for that. And, and after that, I realized because of the trauma, there were all these suicides that nobody was talking about and officers didn't need, know where to get help. So we just kind of, it just evolved. So mm. myself and two officers in Florida, I knew their wives. I didn't know them. And uh, we worked together for over a year before we finally met in person. But the three of us with the second book and the organization just all evolved. Amazing. So you're a police wife. Yes. And so you, so tell me how like the organization, tell me what you guys do. 
So um, at Blue Help, what we do is we are the only national organization that tracks law enforcement suicides year over year. We started doing that on January 1st, 2016. So we're in our fifth year now of collecting suicides. So if somebody knows of law enforcement, and that includes corrections, because we mirror what they do on Officer Down Memorial page and on the memorial wall in DC. We also collect retired suicides so we can get a feel for what's going on there. So we, we collect all that data. We offer support to the families, such as sending care packages after a suicide, care packages to the department where it's appropriate. Uh, we have some online support groups. We were rolling out some retreats this year, but COVID-19 we can't, but we help with Christmas gifts. You know, things that they do for line of duty families that they don't do for suicide, we try to do. And then in addition to that, we do a lot of awareness stuff. We do training. We speak at national events. It's really just kind of to, to lift up the conversation and, and keep it in the forefront. And, and I think we've done a pretty good job of that, making sure that we've, we've continually kept this issue in the news and in the front of people's minds all across law enforcement. Yeah, I love that. Now, tell me, have you seen... What have you seen? Like, so if you guys are tracking this and you've, you've been right up front with the statistics and probably the families up front and personal, and what, what are you seeing? Like, what's the trend? What, what, what are we seeing for a trend for like in the line of duty? Like, why are our officers doing that? So, you know, I mean, everybody knows suicide's complicated. So we don't, um, we, we are actually coming out with a paper another month or two, probably September, to show what we found over the past five years of doing this. But I mean, the main theme is that officers don't feel like they can ask for help. So, mm. you know, every family says that after the fact, and it's it's uncanny because people say, well, what's the common thread? There, there really is no common thread. The common thread is that they are police officers and they didn't seek help. So, there's, you know, there's definitely addiction problems, there's alcoholism, there's, they lost their job. Um, some officers take their lives within three months prior to retirement or three months after retirement. So we, we track how far out from retirement they have been. Uh, they, they might have a death in their family. One officer lost his son and he took his life shortly afterwards. So, so their problems are not anything different than what we experience. But the, the bigger problem is that they feel like they cannot seek help um, and keep their job. So that, that pressure becomes immense. And, you know, they just go down that mental rat hole and they take their lives. Why do you think that they, why, why do you think from your expertise on being a wife, why do you think the officers feel like they can't ask for help? Well, just from being a wife and from doing this for the last four years. Um, so for instance, I, I won't name the city, but uh, officers in one of the cities where there were riots recently, and not, not protests, there were actual riots, uh, an officer went to a peer support group, and he posted about that peer support group on Facebook and encouraged others to join. And uh, he was sent home from his department and told to get professional help. He was mandated uh, because it became a liability for their department to have an officer who was distressed. So that is an example of what's been happening every year. So you don't want, you don't, it's not that you don't want them. Uh, many departments feel like these officers are liabilities. Like they're just an accident waiting to happen. And if something happens, then the department becomes liable because the officer didn't seek help. Then of course, there's that whole stigma of, um, you know, feeling like you're not supposed to get help. You're a tough guy. Um, officers feel like they shouldn't, be going home with problems and asking for help. 
because of that image. So that becomes difficult for them in, in so many ways. But I think most of it stems from this hero um, persona that we've put upon them. Obviously not now, it, it comes and goes, but we, we want them to help us. There's this expectation that they are helping us we don't need to help them. Yeah. And that culture was slowly changing over the past year and a half. And it's been great to see, but right now it's getting lost in the shuffle. And my fear right now is that we are not preparing for the mental health challenges that we're going to be seeing in six months or a year. I don't know that anybody is really stepping up to the plate. So for instance, there, there are a few things that are happening. So the a bill just passed and was signed by President Trump at the same time he passed the police reform bill, but it didn't make the news. The FBI is now going to be required to collect the suicide data and suicide attempts, similar to what they do with law enforcement, with LEOCA, law enforcement officers killed and assaulted. Also being introduced tomorrow is a bill that would offer officers who have post-traumatic stress that are direct result of the job or suicide from the job, the same PSOB benefits that line of duty death and injuries get, physical injuries. So, so stuff is still, it's still trucking along, but no one's really paying it. You have to really be paying attention the way we do, you know, to wow. know that, that stuff is going on. But in the meantime, um, there's, there's been a bit of a backslide and there's no more funding anymore for training and resiliency. And it's, it's really too bad um, because we're going to see a problem in a few months. What do you think? So let's say there's some, like a command staff, somebody in the command staff listening to this. What, what, would you, what would you say, what would be your advice to them? So like, how can they start getting proactive? You know, it's the same advice I think they've been hearing for years. Number one, they need to talk about whatever challenges they've had throughout their career because make themselves human, let the officers know what they're going through is normal. Um, you know, we know a lot of uh, chiefs and command staff that, that have been suicidal or that had issues, but they simply don't talk about it. So we need to talk about that more. They need to make the time for the training. So, you know, we have in-service training every year. Um, you know, you have those in-service classes and I think they devote an hour to mental health. You know, that's, you need, you need more than an hour. You know, my nephew's in the academy right now and he said, auntie, they were actually talking about blue health the other day, but the time that they spent on mental health was so small and he's been in the academy for months, you know, yeah. so, so that needs to be, you know, the cradle to grave thing, but you really have to change the culture and you have to have a policy. You have to have a policy for when an officer dies by suicide. So um, when an officer dies off duty, there's a policy or protocol that you can follow when they get certain honors and many departments take it upon themselves to say, it eh, doesn't apply to suicide, even though it's an off duty death. Well, suicide should be included in that protocol and they should follow it because they still serve their community. Uh, they should also have a policy or a protocol for officers who seek help so they know that they're not going to be penalized. They know what the policy and procedure is if their seeking help becomes public because they can't be penalized for that. So we're just not still not talking about it enough in the departments, um, still have no policies and protocols in place for any of this. And, and I think that makes it even harder because there's nothing for an officer to hold on to to say, you know what, I'm not going to be penalized. I, I can do this and, and here's, here's proof. Um, and set an example so that when you find out somebody is seeking help, treat them well. Like, you, you know, don't, don't make it a big deal. Let, you know, just, hey, how you doing? Anything I can do? Okay, great. Carry on, you know? You know, I have to say, I, I really, I like a lot of what you're saying. I, 
So we ha- I had a discussion. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Nick Ruggs. He's uh, the yeah. roll call. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, he, he said something and I, um, I really kind of, he said it in the way that I've already been doing. So, but what he said, he said that instead of having peer support teams, we need to have a peer support atmosphere within the, within our agencies. And I couldn't agree more. And that's really what I've been trying to do is so what I've been doing is I've been offering life coaching. So I'm essentially bridging the gap between the licensed clinical worker, which no cop wants to go see and peer support. Right. So I'm like, let's, how, how do we change the culture? So what I'm finding and what a lot of officers for me, they just want to vent and they just want to be heard. And if they can just talk with somebody to help them process some shit and help them to understand like, yo, you're not alone and how right. you feel. And you feel exactly like every officer next to you, but they're not telling you that, mm-hmm. which is when you're talking about, you know, the atmosphere and changing the culture. Like I just, I just think that it's such a big it's such a big deal. And I think our administrators and our command staff, for some reason, they are not like letting down the gate. You know, I was just talking to a chief today. I was in his office and we were having a conversation about us. And he said, you know, everybody thinks that when you become a chief, you just become immune. Like I, I all of a sudden don't have PTSD. I all of a sudden am fine. He goes, no, he's absolutely not. Like I, and he, he went right into it with me and like talked about the situations that he's been through and you know, and so he's trying, he, he's trying to do some stuff, but he's, but what he's coming up against, and I want to hear your opinion on this is he's coming up against some old school cops in his command who are like, no, <laughs> you know, they're like, hell no, we're not talking about this. What, what do you think? Like, how do we make them feel safe? Yeah. I, and, and that's not, there's no easy answer to that, you know, and, I, and I've joked before, I say, you know, this snowflake generation is going to be the best thing that happened to law enforcement because they're going to talk about their feelings, right? Yes. And they're going to get help. So when you have old school cops like that, that don't want to talk about it, there's, there's really, unless they experience a suicide, there's really not a whole lot we're going to be able to do to change their minds. If we haven't changed their minds by now and, or at least chipped away with, at them, and that's all we really can do is keep chipping away, keep educating, keep making this awareness, keep making them understand. You know, we, um, we see a lot of, and this is why I, I don't see things changing as much as they should change anytime soon. We see, you know, an officer serves 20 years, you know, he's a great officer, good parent, good dad, you can't find anything wrong with the guy, right? He has other issues that, you know, and the job contributed to it, he takes his life and everybody turns their back. So shame on him, coward, this, that. The empathy completely leaves the atmosphere. And I, and I, I don't understand that. And when you continue to do that, so part of the stigma that we cultivate is even after death. So when you're cultivating the stigma after death, when you're turning your back on their families and their kids, and when you refuse to give them any kind of honors, you are still, you're contributing to everything that's wrong with this culture, you know? Mm -hmm. And I understand it's a societal thing. It's not just relegated to law enforcement, but at some point people need to change their hearts or, you know, what I've suggested is, you know, it's not up to me to decide um, whether or not what's suicide is cowardly. It's, it's, I mean, I don't personally think it is, but it's not my decision. What I should be focused on is there are these two kids left behind. There's a widow and I, they didn't do anything wrong. I need to take care of them the way I would take care of anybody else. I should 
respect his life, the way he lived it. I should respect his family. But instead, we focus on this one action, and I, I, I'll never understand it. So we, we just need to put our personal biases aside and treat it like we treat any other death. And, and, and even in alive, we need to treat it like any other injury. Put that aside because there's not one single person on the face of this earth that can tell me that they've never been depressed or never had a problem. You right. know, maybe they weren't suicidal, but if, if you've ever felt any kind of desperation or sadness or any negative emotion, you should be able to have empathy for this person and what they're going through and, yeah. and offer them assistance or, or be understanding when they need it. And, and as, as a society, we don't seem to be able to do that. It's, it's so hard to wrap your head around. So all we can do is just keep pushing the envelope and bringing it up and letting people talk about it and making them understand what's going on and hope that we change. But the culture, these old school guys, you know, that's, that's really hard. And especially if you have a chief who's old school, forget it. You know, we have guys contact us, you know, what can I do to change my chief's mind? I want to do this. There's nothing we can do to change his mind. Um, and as far as peer support, peer support's an interesting thing too. And, and now more than ever, because now um, we know of, of organization departments that uh, are rural departments, they don't have peer support programs. So what they've done is they've created regional peer support programs because it helps with the anonymity. And, you know, you talk, I talk to you, Autumn, and then two months from now, you're my lieutenant. You know what I talked to you. And I, now I'm afraid that, you know, you know my deep, dark feelings. So, so peer support is also can be a double-edged sword sometimes too. But if done well, done right, you know, if you're in New York State, there's New York, you know, um, peer support groups. So, so you don't have to call the NYPD peer support. You can call the New York peer support, Alabama Leaps, you can call them. So, and that's a good way to structure peer support because you have to think about all these other situations and, and the concerns the officers themselves have with those programs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think the whole environment has to shift, right? So that oh, we can absolutely. be, so that we can just, before we even get to the low spot and before our officers even get to the low spot of, I don't want to air my dirty laundry. I mm -hmm. really believe that we need to change, you know, the atmosphere, an idea that I've been having and I've been bringing forward to chiefs. I, I think briefings bullshit. The way that we do briefings every single day is complete bullshit. Nobody gives a fuck about what's on this paper and you know what I mean? What just happened in district B and district A, nobody cares. Why don't we sit down and talk about like, Hey, last night we had this crash, Johnny, you know, you, you were the main guy, like, how you doing? What's going on? You know, you know, Vicky, you heard about it. And the dispatcher who a lot of times there's sometimes, well, I don't, I can't speak for every agency, but sometimes they come in and they sit in on these like briefings. Like, I just think we should be having conversations like that because then it opens up this environment where everybody's having a conversation and it's nobody's airing their dirty laundry, but they're just processing what they just saw. You know, a lot of times, and I'd like to hear what you, you know, what your experience is, but from my experience as being an officer, as well as having several that are my clients that I coach is that they just need to process. It's like, they're just sitting there and they're like with the shit in their head and they're just replaying and replaying and replaying, but they don't. And the thing is, and here's the number one thing I found officers need to process with another officer, somebody exactly like them in their police department. They need to, because they need to feel that validation when they're, when, you know, a lot of times what I found is officers think that they're the only ones who think that the, these thoughts are the only ones who have seen this shit. They must be weak. They must be not fit for this job. And it's like, wait a minute. No, we all feel that shit. And it, I think 
in my opinion, is if we just talked about it. And it's not wussy talk. I'm not sitting here like, I know I, I'm not asking a bunch of type A men and women to mm-hmm. be like, oh, here's how I feel. I'm just looking for leaders to just have, you know, constructive conversations versus debriefings be a ball busting session that gets nothing done. You know what I mean? I do. And it's funny. I mean, we're not the first people in this arena, right? We've only been doing this for a few years, but um, a lot of times it's, it's interesting to me, the comments I see on our social media or the messages we get of officers saying, um, I'm so glad you guys are around because now I know I'm not the only one who felt this way. And they meet each other through our social media or whatever, our events, and they're surprised um, because they're, they're able to talk to other officers where they weren't before. And they know that they're not the only ones who experienced this or felt this way. Um, so that's always a really interesting piece that the officers don't realize. And as far as, you know, you, you know, you have the debriefing, maybe a five minute debriefing, but there's no follow up three to six yeah. months later, you need that. Um, and then, you know, you talk about, uh, just, you know, so many incidents, you know, where an officer sees something or they're, they're at the scene of some kind of accident or something, anything, any, any call that's gone wrong, whether it's a domestic violence or child abuse or a car accident or a fire, and they get back in the cruiser and they go to the next call. Yes. So, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen those heart math studies where it shows how often an officer's heart goes up and down oh, during their shift, yeah. you know, and the stress, but you, there's no downtime there's no there's no debriefing so mm-hmm. because there's always another call waiting so you um you know my brother isn't a lot as a fireman so i can make fun of firemen you know he gets to go back to the department yeah. sit in his bedroom with the air conditioner he just took from my mother-in-law's house mm-hmm. and watches tv and yeah. work out you know until the next call comes through but a police officer you get right back in your car and you go to the next call and that's not it's not normal it's not fair and it's certainly not a situation in which we can expect people to always be at their best yes you know and there is this expectation oh you signed up for it oh they knew the job and and i'm gonna i call bullshit on that because you can't i i you know i do this blue help as a volunteer work and and the number of suicide alerts we get and it's not just you know we got three over the weekend three officers took their lives over the weekend so they come right to my phone, you know, and, and we don't get just this year, we get all years. So we're constantly getting alerts of suicides, people reporting their suicides and it takes a toll on you, because, yeah. but I can shut my phone off, you know, and when, and I've done it, I've shut my phone off um, sometimes on holiday weekends. Cause I just can't take the death, you know, but I can shut my phone off and regroup and come back fresh. But a police officer doesn't have that luxury. And mm-hmm. I, and I don't understand people don't think that far ahead, you know, mm. and this goes to critical thinking because, you know, we're, we're busy with our daily lives. We have our kids, our jobs, or, you know, we have to make dinner, do the dishes, pay the bills. So we're not really thinking like what's going on with a cop. How's his life? Has he, you know, does he get to take a break between calls? And, and it's a funny thing, this whole first responder business, because, and this, this has been bothering me, obviously probably you guys too, for the past month or so, uh, you know, heroes, 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 COVID-19, first responders, but police, it's so disingenuous. They're not considered first responders because first responders are heroes and police are um, temporary heroes, you know, or Always. they're conditional, conditional heroes, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we love first responders except for police, you know, so whenever anything goes wrong, these are people whose job is to uphold the law and hold you accountable 
but you blame them personally for doing a job that's necessary to society. And Mm -hmm. I, and I, and so, so you have this, this whole thing where you're not really thinking about what the officer is going through himself. Um, You only think of them when there's an emergency or when they do something heroic. And then the rest of the time we cast them aside. So I I just feel like um, people don't realize what actually is involved with being a police officer. You know, I I couldn't agree with you more. And and it's just so true. And for the officer, it's so short lived when you do something right. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It really is sh- so short-lived. Like, I, I mean, I remember, I'll tell you this, like, and it's so small. This is just so small. But I'll just give you this example. Is, um, I had a call and this black lab, an older black lab, got loose and, like, went down to the neighbor's house and, like, went through their screen door, okay? And I, I found the dog, brought the dog back to the owners, and the owners were, like, devastated, right? Because this is their baby. It got out and and then it went through the store and they thought the dog was like going to get run over because it was on a main road, blah, blah. Anyways, long story short, bring the dog back. I'm like, hey, the people whose screen door you broke, it, they, they don't even care. Like they're just, just, you know, keep your dog in. And, you know, they were so thankful. I got the biggest, like biggest flower bouquet and like all these chocolates. Like they, they knew I would, you know, they, they knew my number. And you know what? And it was so small, right? But it made me feel good. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like you see me as a human even mm-hmm. though like that was so, so small. I mean, I was just bringing your dog back to you. Right. But they, they made me feel like a human. And I'm going to tell you that lasted two minutes. The yeah. chief came down, said, Autumn, blah, blah, here you go. And briefing, nobody gave a shit and moved on. And that was it. Like that was it. And like, and listen, I'm not saying I need to be a hero for bringing a dog back. That's not the point. The point is that is an analogy for what all these officers are going through. And it doesn't matter how big or how small that their incident is we're not exactly what you're saying is like, we're not, we're not blowing up the fact that you just, you just went into a burning building, although you shouldn't have, you just ripped somebody out of a burning car. Although, you know, you're not even a firefighter, you know, you just, you went in and saved this person's life. You just administered CPR until EMT got there. You just administered Narcan and saved this kid's life who just accidentally freaking overdosed first time ever doing drugs. Look what you just did. And, and it's like, well, obviously you signed up for it. That's the culture. That's, this is the culture that has to change. And mm-hmm. one thing I just want to say, of course you got me, you know, this subject gets me really on my soapbox. So I'm sorry, Karen. But, um, you know, the thing is, is that we are not doing police work the way that right. they were doing police work 20 years ago. Police work has fucking changed and we need to get with the times. We need to get with the program. And I'm going to say this. I really think that NYPD is all doing us. They're not doing us favors by what they're doing, why, by what's going on and them defunding and, and all this shit. And they set presidents, you know, because they are the largest, you know, especially mm-hmm. on this side of the country, you know, and, and they're, not, they're not helping us out here. And they're not helping us bring positive change. Now, I will tell you this. I am an optimist. And I will say that I do think that we will see some forward momentum, especially from people like you, you know, your organization, you're reaching a lot of people. Clearly, if academies are talking about you, you know, um, I respect what you guys do a lot. And, you you know, we are building some forward momentum. I do believe that this we're going to hit rock bottom, but then we're going to have to go up. Right. And I'm a little yeah. nervous, just as you said, I'm definitely nerd- nervous for what the rock bottom is. Right. <laughs> like, Yeah. So I'm gonna, I want to give you two examples of the, the perception and culture 
um, not, not culture, it's perception issues of society that lead to these culture issues and lead to suicide. So number one is a really recent one. We had um, a protest here in, in, in our city and teachers were carrying signs that said, stop killing our students. And so I was like, what? So I went and looked for the amount of time my husband's been on the job here, which is 25 years. And that whole time, our police department has killed two people. Both of them are white and neither one of them are students. So I was like, what is, so people jump on this crazy bandwagon, you know, of this perception that police are evil. So, so that's our number one problem, you know, and, and of course it affects the officer. And number two, and this is something when I wrote my first book, Hearts Beneath the Badge, I mean, I just fell in love with this guy, um, even though I never met him and he had passed away by the time I wrote about him, but hearing about him from his family, his name was Jeremy Henwood. He was an officer in California. And this is the epitome of how, um, I, I can't think of the word right now, but, but, but the, 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 the image of law enforcement. So here, so here it is. I'll explain it first, and then maybe I'll think of the word. So Jeremy Henwood was a police officer in California, and he was in McDonald's. And while he was in McDonald's, there was a little boy in there, and he wanted to buy some cookies, and he didn't have enough money for the cookies. So the McDonald's video camera caught Jeremy buying cookies for the kid, talking to him about his future, spending some time with him, and, you know, whatever, just a little dialogue. Jeremy got in his car with his lunch, his McDonald's crappy McDonald's lunch on his seat, and was driving down the street. And a driver flagged him down. And this driver, his only goal for the day was to set out to kill a police officer, shot Jeremy dead in the head. So Jeremy, his death would not have gone viral if he hadn't been a police officer. And then at the same time, him buying the cookie in the McDonald's literally 10 minutes before he died went viral. That wouldn't have been gone viral had he not been killed immediately afterwards. So there's the, the whole thing that's so intertwined of... The police do good things every day, and all, unless all day, something ha horrible happens to them, nobody's going to notice. So mm -hmm. right now, every not everybody, people think you know police are horrible. Um, they're bad people. They don't do anything right. And and in Jeremy's instance, the right thing went viral because he personally was attacked and died for no reason. Mm -hmm. But right now, because the general populace well, whatever the two percent the loud two percent is they're attacking police so so their good deeds are not going being noticed because it's a i, I don't know the right word to use because it's a negative thing you know mm -hmm. if god forbid 20 officers were killed overnight tonight then their good deeds would go viral because everybody'd be like oh my god this poor guy they shouldn't have to be killed to to, to, to for their good deeds i'm sorry i get all worked up no. to go unnoticed you know what i mean so then yeah. so so there's your thing you're you're doing all these good things good things good things as a police officer and then and, and it's never enough so I mean, imagine that as a mom. I mean, you're, you're, you're a mom. You get frustrated because you, you want everybody to be naked on laundry day because no matter how much laundry you do, there's always more laundry, right? Mm -hmm. So you're frustrated. Mm -hmm. Imagine that 10 times over being a cop, you know? Dichotomy. Yes, thank you. So <laughs> that's mm -hmm. the word. But so, you know what I mean? That's the dichotomy of policing. Unless you get shot and killed immediately after your good deed, it, nobody cares. Okay. Girl, I'm telling you, I was just talking, I was just talking to an administrator about how many times, and I know that I could speak for every first responder listening to this, how many times I've 
paid for somebody. I've put $5 of gas in somebody's tank. I've brought somebody home. I'm going to tell you right now, I almost freaking wanted to bail this kid out so bad. Thank God his mom came through. It was a $160 bail and he didn't deserve to go to jail. And it was just like this young kid and his, oh, it was, I'm telling you, Karen, I was like in tears when he had a warrant out for, he had a warrant and I couldn't, I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want to do this. Call your mom, call your mom, call your mom. And she, what, he, got a, he got a ticket and his mom was paying for it because he was going to college, but then she missed a, a couple of like payments and then they issued a warrant, right? And so it was a stupid warrant, but it doesn't matter because in Maine, I had to arrest. And I'm yeah. telling you, and I'm like, listen, I told him, I'm like, listen, you do not belong in a jail cell. You, no, no, no. You know, and I'm like, and you know, when I'm up there next scenario, playing ball, playing sports, mm-hmm. doing all this shit. All of us are. I'm not just speaking about me. I'm just saying all of us are, and you're so right. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I was never out there going like this. Hey, I'm playing ball. Like, watch me play ball (laughs) with my phone. Like, I was never doing that. I just did it. Never told my sergeant. Never said anything. You know what I'm saying? Just did it. And um, there's so many cops out there that are just doing it. And I think you're so right in in the stigma and the dichotomy of being a police officer. It is you know, right now we're really, it's really not a good situation, but we have people, I'm very thankful for organizations like yours, um, for people like me, all of us first responders on here, my mastermind, we're doing, we're doing this domino effect. Conversations like this are really good, you know? Now I want to switch gears and I want to ask you some probably tougher questions, um, just emotionally tougher. As I just want to, <laughs> she's like, okay, I'm gearing up. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I want to talk about that what you, you've probably, I'm assuming, interviewed a lot of spouses who have been left behind. Can we talk about that? I want to talk about what, I want to talk about anything you want to tell me, but I really want to just, I want to know, number one, I want to know how we, as Sheepdog Nation and every person here, I want to know how we can support our these spouses because like you said, they did nothing wrong. They're, and, and, the tr- and, this, and the truth of the matter is their officer didn't do anything wrong. They just couldn't handle it. And that's the way that I just want to say that, you know, so we need to, like you said earlier, like we need to stop making them out to be like these bad people because they took their lives. I think that we could, you know, I I go on and I'm like, let's look at the agencies because we can put a whole lot of blame on the agency for not supporting their officers. So that's just me. But how do we support them? I want to talk about, I want to, I want to hear like events. Is there a common theme leading up? You said probably not, but like, tell me, like, let's talk about and, and spouses who are seeing their officers under a lot of stress. Like, what do you have? Tell me everything you can. So um, one of the things that I I hear is this whole breaking point thing. You know, things are stacking up, stacking up, stacking up, and you don't realize what's the last straw. So we had an officer. um, He was a CIA agent. He was a recovery diver. uh, He became a police officer. Um, A lot of stuff piling up on him at work. Um, felt isolated from his department. It was a new department. He didn't know the officers very well. A couple of tragic incidents. Um, and he was stressed. His wife knew he was stressed. Um, his department, not so much. But um, they had an accident one day and a car plunged into a river with some kids in it. And and their, their bodies didn't come up and they couldn't dive for them because of the, 
the type of the river it was and whatnot. So he walked along the bank of the river for a couple of days waiting for the bodies to come up. They hadn't come up yet. He's on the back deck with his wife, um, had arrested somebody earlier that day, and he gets a text message from the DA saying that they have to let this guy out on bail again. And this is somebody they'd arrested multiple times, a real bad guy. He's out on bail again. And something just snapped. That was just the last straw for him. Um, he went and got his gun. Uh, she called 911. They came. They tried to talk him down. They couldn't. And he took his life right there in front of his wife and his coworkers on their front deck. So he, you know, and she, she talks about it constantly about how she should have known it was the last straw. There was so much stuff piled up. Um, and, and of course you can't really know what somebody's last straw is. And for him, it was just so fast. It was this text. She didn't know he was going to, there was no way for her to ever predict this. Um, but when you have officers who literally take their lives when they get served divorce papers or they get served custody papers, you know, that's when we should keep an eye out. So, um, and this is an example I use. It's just an analogy. You know, if you, are riding with a guy for, for years or months or whatever, and the guy wears a plaid shirt to work every day. And one day he shows up and he's got a solid shirt on. Ask him why he's wearing a solid shirt. You know, there's something going on. Um, if he just got divorced and, and everything is horrible in his life and all he has left is his dog and his dog dies from cancer or gets hit by a car, that's like check in because you just don't know if that's their last straw. So again, some of these things are sudden and there's nothing you can do, but we, there's quite a few officers who have literally gotten served divorce papers and took their lives on the scene or immediately after. And, and that's a really hard one um, because you, because you can't, you know, expect that everybody who gets divorce papers is going to take their life, but you have to be aware of what's going on in your friend and your family's lives and, and what's their last straw. Try to get to know them. Um, one, one thing we see a lot is blame. Um, we had an officer who had been suicidal. His, his suicide actually made national news because the chief said she wouldn't give him honors because he killed himself and she's not going to glorify suicide. So, um, yet she showed up at his funeral to give a speech. So the thing with him was, um, he, they thought he was having marital problems. So they were blaming the wife, um, and when he went missing, they blamed the wife and said, oh, he's probably just trying to get away from you. Well, he was in his car in the parking lot from the police station for dead for three days before they found him because they didn't want to look for him because they assumed he was having a domestic. So there's a lot of judging going on, especially when it comes to interpersonal relationships. Um, and afterward, you know, you know, if an officer dies of a heart attack, gets hit by a car, those are all line of duty deaths. We don't question their personal life. An officer dies by suicide, we blame the, 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 the wife. She spends too much money. Um, she was cheating on him, whether, whether real or perceived, you know. We, we can't judge that because, you know, that whole the first one in the glass house, throw a stone, whatever that is, don't you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so we're, we're, we're taking, we're, we're, I understand we're looking for somebody to blame, but, but we shouldn't be blaming the family. So, so they get left behind a lot because people are looking for somebody to blame and they blame the, the wife or the kids or the mom, um, whoever is left behind. Um, and, and we can't do that. So that's, that's something that we need to think about as a human being, again, not just as law enforcement, but we can't judge what's going on with that officer. We need to be aware of what the signs and symptoms are of suicide. We need to be aware of people, um, what's going on with them, if they're sick, uh, just as a human and, and regular behavior as a friend. But after the suicide, uh, I think there's enough shame and guilt in the family unit itself without it having to be 
put upon them even more by their agency or coworkers or whoever it may be. So um, we see a lot of the kids being left behind that were included uh, before the suicide. And, and now the department no longer includes them in the activities. Uh, the LAPD does a really good job of including families, no matter what the cause of death, suicide, off-duty death, cancer, or line of duty. They have a group that includes all of them and they're all welcome and they're all engaged. Um, and, I, and I'll use police week as an example. So we had a dinner at police week last year for officers who lost their lives to suicide and injured officers. And, and we, we had paid all their expenses and we were doing again this year. Um, we were told in no uncertain terms that our family didn't belong there, our families, um, that, that, that police week is not for suicides. We shouldn't be competing with them. And um, these families were welcomed when their officer was alive. So wow. as far as I'm concerned, police week isn't owned by anybody. The intent if you read the proclamation by John F. Kennedy, it's for all of law enforcement. And I know that that's a sticking point. I know it's a stigma thing, but um, shame on us as a culture if we think that because they died by suicide, they don't belong at police week, that it's some kind of competition, that it's only for line of duty. Um, so th those things are ingrained in our culture and um, we, we have a hard time getting past those. And again, again, it's not just law enforcement, it's society as a whole, but those kind of things are things we need to think about um, both before and after the death. The treatment, you know, being aware of signs and symptoms, knowing somebody, knowing what their, their, their hot buttons are, and then afterwards, how we're treating the family. That's a, that's a huge thing because a lot of the families just feel awful. And, and I myself have um, had issues because, you know, doing something like this that has never been done before, you make mistakes. And uh, you, I try really hard to be attentive to all the families, but there's so many of them and you can't, and our, and our organization can't always. So sometimes we take some heat. Well, I lost the blue family and, and I'm still not getting the support I need, but, but there's also only so much support you can get, whether it's an organization or an individual. So it's a really fine line because you want to take care of people, but it's, um, how, how, how much, what is that? What is that, that guideline? You know, is it, is it a GoFundMe to help them pay their mortgage? Because I can't tell you how many of these families have lost their houses. We had one officer, um, his wife, just she just lost her house. He took his life earlier this year because there's nothing left for them financially. There's nothing left. There's no fundraisers. There's no nothing. And the care package we sent them, um, that's not going to pay their bills. But we're hoping to get to a point where we can be you know, more financially assisting. We're offering scholarships for kids this year where, you know, we help with co-pays when we can. So um, we need to think about how we help them in the aftermath of the suicide too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what, okay. So how does it work with, do you guys reach out or do they reach out to you or, or like, how does that go? And like, how else can we help? Like how else can all of us help? Um, so what we do is if, if they fill out our online form, there's a question, can we contact you? So if it's a family member and they say yes, um, we reply, regardless of whether we can contact them or not. I always reply with personal, you know, thanks for letting us know. So sorry if you're lost or anything we can do and, and leave that up to the families. Um, sometimes the departments contact us and they say, I have the family here with me. How can we get them going? How can we help them? So what we try to do is if, if they um, want to speak to another family who's further out, kind of help walk them through, help guide them. We do that. Um, we're 
we're having these virtual groups, support groups now that are being organized. Uh, we, like I said, we send the care packages. If, if we know the family is having issues, we say, how can we help you? Like we knew um, one family that the son was suicidal, so they couldn't afford to get mental help. So we helped them with that. Uh, funeral expenses we've helped with. So it just, it depends on the family. Um, and we just try to do what we can for what they need at that time as, as much as we can. And we, um, we really want them to build a network and, and that's what we've been working at. And, and we've succeeded very well, I think, of building a network of support across the moms and the siblings and the, the widows and the kids are a lot harder, but we're working on that. Uh, but as far as helping, um, we just need people to spread our message, let people know that we're here, let departments know we're here after a suicide. Um, if an officer needs help, we're not a hotline, but we know where they can get help. So if an officer contacts us and says, I, I, I'm this, this, and this, we can say, okay, here's, here's three of our favorite resources in this area. You know, if you need financial help, here's our financial. If you need spiritual, here's our, you know, depending on their circumstance. And we say, just contact them. And then we circle back with them, see if they got the help they needed. Um, because we are definitely not a hotline, but we don't want anybody to feel like they can't get help. We want to help them find the help. So that's really, um, in a really short nutshell, what we Love. do. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love the conciseness. Can you tell everybody how to find you? Like if sure. uh, yeah, on the social Blue help, B L U E H E L P.org is our website. And on our website, we do have what's called an honor wall where we do similar to what officer down Memorial page does when the families are ready. We put the officers names and faces up. Yesterday was the one year anniversary of Lieutenant Brantman. And we put him up on our website. He was out of Hales corner, Wisconsin. Um, his wife and his, his young daughter wrote his memorial and asked us to post it on the one year memorial of his death. Mm -hmm. So that's on our social media. Our social media handle is at blue help le the law enforcement and that's where you can find us and is it true on amazon we can donate to you yes amazon okay. smile blue help yep um i give um it's i-g-i-v-e when you can you can select a charity so we are 501c3 national nonprofit charity so wherever you would pick a charity you can pick us um you can donate on our website you can do a facebook birthday fundraiser you name it. You can donate an old car to us. We'll have it picked up and we get 1500 bucks for it. Really? Yes, ma'am. Wow. I didn't know that. And so, yeah. and the money goes directly to tell us. So, um, we have been operating since January 1st, 2016, all volunteer. In February, we finally hired somebody to help us because we're we needed an admin to help us. So we do have a full-time admin. Um, so she, other than her, all the money goes to the events for the families, the care packages, training, traveling to training, doing training, doing speaking. Um, we, we, for instance, New York Leap, they wanted to do a free training for the NYPD last year. We gave them a couple thousand dollars to help fund it. So if somebody's doing a training and they can't fund it, we'll see what we have. We just did a coffee run. Um, that was completely paid for by Motorola and Gary Sinise Foundation. We sent coffee and PPE to, well, I, think, I think it was 658 departments around the country at their request. Wow. So everything that we get, it's either earmarked for something or we say, okay, what's the best use? So what, what can we do right now that, that officers need that we can spend this money on? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you for spending time with us. It's been a thank really you. amazing educational hour. Um, Mastermind members, do we have any questions? 
Nope. Okay. Sheepdog like, Nation. Jonathan looked like he was writing notes and I was like, I, I was waiting for some really pointed, hard questions from him. <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably I was scared. <laughs> Mine, I wasn't, uh, no pointed questions, just, you know, thanking you, thanking your organization. And with that, Sheepdog Nation, we'll see you next time. They buried me in the water and I came out new. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blood. I'm a fighter. I'm a never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. Family, country, and town The media don't cover us huh. Well, maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops Politicians more concerned about protecting the legal Instead of laying the law down And protecting the people Let me get off my soapbox Before I curse I don't see way too many cops Riding in hearse Well, I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue light Cause they baptized in blue uh, I'm a fighter Winner never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue I'm a fighter, never winner never quit I refuse to lose, I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue If I'm faced with a mission, I'm gonna complete it If that means being deleted, I live with the credence I do this for the combat vets and LEOs when I'm suited, ready to go. It's either friend or foe, only Lord knows what my future's in store. I only kill with the hope to see more, so God don't close that door. If I take a life, it's him or me, with the hopes to survive, not be a good tree. I go in situations that you cannot imagine, deal with things that 
that you cannot fathom No, it buts a rather I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing So when you read my headstone, you know I died for something You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force You blame the cops first, that don't work, you blame the courts But I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do Only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue arm oh, I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit I refuse to lose, I got hard and I got gritty I'm a Baptized in blue, I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter, never win or never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got grace. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. Oh.